Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. The fundamentals have to be there as well as it's good to have as secure financing or as, let's say, fixed type financing as you can get. But I think a lot of people are going through it. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm your host, Joe Cornwell, and today I am joined with Mike Deaton. He's the founder of Flipping Dirt and Deaton Equity Partners. He is a land buyer and flipper. He holds over 1,000 units of multifamily, and he is based in the Woodland Park, Colorado market. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Joe, you bet, man. Thanks for having me on the show. I understand you have been a previous guest, correct? Yes, sir. I don't remember exactly when, but sometime in the past. Awesome. Well, we will be sure to link to that previous episode and tell me a little bit about how your business has changed since you were on the show and what you're focused on today. Yeah, you bet. So I think when I was on the show last, it was kind of heavy in the multifamily world. So we do a little bit of both. As you mentioned, we started flipping land in 2016. It's a great cash cow for us. We generate a lot of income from that. We got into multifamily, I guess in 2020, I would say as a tax hedge. I mean, we were paying a lot of taxes and so we've eliminated our tax bill through multifamily investments and depreciation. And we do that through various ways. We've closed on our own deals as lead sponsors. We raise a little capital. We help with uh, other people's deals. And so I think the last episode was a bit focused on that. But since then, we've really just been growing our business, both in the land, not so much in the multifamily. That's obviously hit its turbulent waters here over the last couple of years. So I'm very optimistic and keeping some powder dry for deals to come in 2024. But yeah, land is still good. We launched a coaching business early in the year on the land side of our business. So we're teaching other people how to enjoy the fruits of uh, flipping land and making great returns and doing all that. So that's a bit on the professional side. On the personal side, yeah, we're in the mountains of Colorado for about two years. Just loving life. We live high up about 10,000 feet. We're surrounded by pine trees, deer, turkey, all that kind of stuff. So life is good. And I saw you're an ultra marathon runner. Is that correct? And what is that? Let's start with that. <laughs> uh, ultra marathons, anything over a marathon distance. So typically they start at about 31, I think a 50K. I don't know if I'm an ultra marathon runner. I dabble occasionally. So I've done a few 50 milers. I have signed up for a 100 mile race August of next year. Arguably the hardest 
hundred mile race in the U.S. at Leadville. So I am, I guess, looking forward to that. I don't know. <laughs> it's a challenge. My follow-up question to that is who hurt you and what made you want to do this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. What masochistic mindset do I have? So I don't know. If you're a runner out there, I'm sure you can sympathize. I got into running as a 5K person and for some odd reason, it just tempts you to see how far you can go. So it's a means to an end for me. It gets me off the couch and doing things. I live in a wonderful part of the country, so I like to trail run. I get out. It's part of my spiritual routine is just to get out and really be appreciative of nature and, and spend some time out there. Also, it's a challenge. It's something to do. We've all got our own Moby Dick out there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a runner, so I cannot empathize, but challenging yourself is definitely a, a cool character trait to have. So I do get that part of it. So as far as the real estate, let's focus on starting with the land flipping. Because again, that's not something I'm familiar with. I've heard a little bit about it, but how did you even get into land flipping? What led you down that path? Yeah, it's a great story. It's a great business model. So I grew up spending about 25 years in corporate America. Out of school, got into manufacturing. So I spent my time really in operations and supply chain. I just went up the ladder. I worked for Microsoft for many, many years running their reverse logistics operations. And so that's kind of where I came from. In 2016, was living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and both my wife and I found ourselves out of work. There was a layoff at Microsoft, really, for me to go forward with the company. You kind of need to be in the Seattle area where their corporate is and just wasn't going to work out for various reasons. Similarly, on my wife's side, she was working in healthcare, and they were consolidating away from the Dallas area to their headquarters in Fort Smith, Arkansas. So we both found ourselves out of work, and our immediate reaction was, holy crap, we got to get a job. And so we started doing all the things that you do to land a W-2 job, networking, polishing up the resume, getting out there. And I personally was just sick to my stomach, just the thought of interviewing. Was I going to have to relocate? What kind of company culture was I going to get into? Some of the companies I was looking at were Amazon, Apple, Tesla, they're great companies to work for, but it's a grind. So I really wasn't thrilled about jumping back in. And so parallel to all of that, we'd been looking at ways to generate cash flow on the side. Just had revisited Rich Dad, Poor Dad, had this concept of cash flow quadrant, building businesses or investments that generate cash flow. And so we already had real estate in the back of our head. In that process, I was listening to great podcasts like this and a few other, and I heard some guests that were doing land flipping and generating triple digit returns on their investments. So it, it piqued my interest enough to buy what it was called a toolkit at the time that was kind of a primer on how to get started, but I had been working full time. So that was really just sitting on the back of the desk, collecting dust. I wasn't taking action on it. So in that moment of crisis, our income stopped because we didn't have side income. So one of the downsides of having a W-2 and, and nothing on the side. So we decided, let's go explore this a bit more. And so we went to a workshop that was called a boot camp. And we met some other people that were doing it. Got a little more confidence that it was, okay, this could be a viable business model. And we just decided, let's go all in. Let's give ourselves a 12-month runway. We had some money in the bank. And so we had a little bit of seed capital to start with. And we launched this like a business. We set up an LLC. We got coaching and training to help us accelerate growth. And we went all in at it and we had success. It took us a few months to get the pipeline filled up with a few purchases. And then we got a few sales after that. And ever since then, it's really been a high growth business for us. As I mentioned, we started making enough money that our tax bill really hurt. 
So we started looking at how do we diversify and minimize that tax bill, and that's what brought us into commercial real estate. But that was really our foray into land was just hearing about it from other people that had had some success and getting educated. It's really the same way we went about with multifamily, quite frankly, but it's a great business model and we love it. Like I said, it's our cash cow today. It has given us and fueled a life that, quite frankly, I don't think I would have necessarily enjoyed had I stayed down the W-2 path. What year was this when you first got into the land? It was 2016 where we started really doing our education. And then right at the beginning of 2017, we launched our own business. Okay. And what markets were you initially buying in? Good question. So we were living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, as I mentioned, and we were leaning on the adage of you should buy properties in your backyard or where you have boots on the ground or that you're familiar with. So we started looking in Texas initially, and ideally in the land business, it helps to find a market where there's a lot of land. So we weren't really looking in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. All the land there is spoken for in some fashion. So we started looking more in East Texas. We had a bit of initial success, nothing substantial. Then we went out to West Texas. And then ultimately we found a few places in Colorado where we really loved it. There was a lot of trees. It was mountainous. It was very rural. We had success really in all of those markets, but we personally love the mountains and pine trees. And we were much more comfortable selling those types of properties because buyers can feel your energy coming through. And so, like I said, we started there in the Texas market and now we're predominantly in Colorado, although we buy and sell properties all over the United States. There are great markets in just about every state. Interesting. So give me an example, whatever size deal you want, because like I said, before we started this call, I don't know anything about land flipping. It's an aspect of real estate I have never dealt with in all of my experiences as an agent and investor, never dealt with land in any capacity. So give me an example. Walk me through it. It's a very simple basic business model at its highest level. We buy properties under market value only. So we go out and we'll find a market, we'll assess the comps, and we will make offers only under the market value and significantly under market value. When we buy it, we do nothing to it. We just flip it, we remarket it, and we enjoy that profit. So for instance, there's an area in Colorado we like to frequent. As I mentioned, it's mountainous. They're typically five-acre lots that are platted out in this area. We can pick up those lots for anywhere between $2,500 and $5,000 per property. So for instance, let's just say we buy a $2,500 piece of land. Well, we've made that offer based on the fact that we know we can sell it for ten dollars or $15,000 on the market. So once we have transacted that and put it in our name, we'll then remarket it and we sell them one of two ways. And the majority of what we sell is on owner financing. So we'll carry the note essentially on your property. If you want to buy a property from us from $20,000, we'll agree on payment terms, $400 a month, $500 a month for five years, and we'll take that. The other way is obviously cash. So if you want to buy it outright on cash, you can do that. So on that $2,500 piece of property, we may make $15,000 profit. And there's really very little expenses that go into that as far as overhead. There's a little bit of transaction cost. We don't involve title companies or realtors or lawyers or surveys or any of that. It's really just kind of a a bare bones aspect. And so in a nutshell, that's it. Now there's obviously nuances once you get into any business and do things beyond that, but that's a basic level. So how do you convey title, and obviously it may be different, I'm based in Ohio, but how do you convey title without title companies or lawyers? How does that work? We just transact directly with the county. 
I would say 95% of the counties in the U.S. subscribe to a digital filing access, and you can do that through a company called Simply File. And some have particulars on how they want a deed formatted, like they want a certain margins on the side or certain verbiage in there, but you figure out what the county needs and we just transact that. And so when we buy a property, we typically handle that ourselves. A lot of times we will go through a title company just because sellers are more comfortable working with an official agent. Title company can act as an escrow agent and there's not this debate about who's going to pay who first or who's going to transact first. And so majority of what we do, we don't need to do that, but sometimes we'll go through. I mean, obviously, it adds cost into the deal and there's margin to play with, but on some deals, not a lot. And then on the sell side, if we own or finance it, we'll usually do a contract for deed. So somebody will need to pay off the property in full before we will transfer title into their name, but we'll do it the same way. We'll just put a deed that we're transacting a property into Joe Smith's name and we'll transact that direct with the county. Okay. Makes sense. How are you finding these vacant lots? Are they all vacant? Are you flipping any other developed lots or developable lots? Or is it mostly rural stuff for enjoyment? I guess there's two questions there. So how are you finding these and what is your typical lot look like that you're selling? I would say almost exclusively do business on vacant properties. We've bought a few with structures on them, but it's by chance. We're typically going to either the county directly or there are a bunch of list services they're the same services that people use in the real estate world, data tree, those types of services. You can get list of owners and you can sort that information by vacant land. The counties all categorize their properties based on commercial. Is it residential? Does it have a structure on it? They put a value on the structure. So there's ways to filter out where the vacant properties are. Sometimes we will filter that down to a particular size, say we want between one and 10 acres. We do a lot of 50 to 100 acre properties as well. It really just depends on the market and the value of the property. But there's different ways to get a hold of that information as well as to filter it however you want to. But it's typically vacant land that we're pulling in. And what is the largest lot you've transacted? We've done 150 acre property here in Colorado. It was actually two properties neighboring one another but same owner. And so we, we transacted that and it was a great property for a hunter and we sold it to a hunter and he goes out and enjoys it. 2024, we've got our eyes set on doing more of that, trying to step up into not necessarily larger acreage just in and of itself, but larger value properties. Just our margins will probably be a little thinner on a percentage basis, but the net profit will ideally be more than others. Yeah. As an agent, I can imagine you know, if you're selling a hundred $2,500 lots. That's a lot of work volume-wise, a lot of transacting. So what does a typical year look like? Obviously, I'm sure it varies, but like how many of these transactions are you doing and how much time per transaction is that taking you to move these? Exactly to your point. When we started out, we were a little all over the place and throughout the process of just getting more familiar with the business, we zoned in because exactly to your point, like you can buy a property very inexpensively and you will sell it inexpensively, but the same amount of work goes into doing one at any price level. However, once you get farther up in value, 
buyers are a little less open to selling you their property for pennies on the dollar, right? Somebody who has a thousand acre ranch is going to hire a realtor to sell their property. Most likely they're not just going to grab some letter out of the mail and say, yeah, I'm going to sell my property to these people for a fraction of what it's worth. So there's really kind of a sweet spot in there. And it's this 10 to $50,000 value retail that we get a higher percentage of responses back on our mailers. But at the same time, you can buy a thousand acre ranch and you don't need to make a whole lot of percentage margin on it to make $100,000 off of it or something like that. And so a typical year for us is we're transacting five and 10 properties a month. The amount of work that goes into it at this point for us, we have a lot of uh, virtual assistants. We have team members that will scrub lists, send out mailers, get responses in. And so we've set up an, our business in a way that we dabble in it. We set the stage. We will direct the team a little bit more about this looks like a good market. Maybe we're not going to try here. Let's try a certain number of solicitations in this market. And so we have a few other things going on right now. So our team does a lot of it. But per transaction on a piece of property, I would say it doesn't need to take more than a few hours really of work because you're sending out mailers in a mass, a thousand mailers at a time to solicit potential sellers. Then, okay, you have a few conversations with people. The transaction itself, it doesn't take very long at all to customize a deed off a template, file it with the county. There may be some notarization that has to take place, and that may take a bit of time. Where things can get a bit time-consuming is with marketing and sales. It just depends. If you have to, if you have a lot of tire kickers, if you're having a lot of conversations, okay, there can be some time there. But even that is inconsequential, I would say. It's not that deep of a time commitment. We know people that do this an hour or two a week on the side. They just want some side hustle income. And then there's other people that do it full time that are working personally on their business. And then there's uh, another handful of people that set this up like a business and they have a team and they're running it like a business. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital's never missed a preferred payment never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital dot the bamcompanies.com how often on these properties you're putting under contract do you physically go out walk them look at them anything like that physically inspect them good question so the short answer is theoretically you don't have to do it at all our early days we moved to colorado in 2017 and we were buying and selling in a couple of areas that were maybe a four-hour drive from where we lived maybe less than that, three or four hours. And if we had a handful of properties in our inventory, we would take a day trip and go out, walk the properties, take some photos. I got a drone, so I will go take some drone videos and flyovers of the properties. And we just kind of make a day out of it. And it was really just more getting out and having fun than it was a need to go out and explore the properties. 
There are other ways to skin that cat. A lot of people don't even get pictures of the actual property or anything like that. It's good to ask if you're buying a piece of property from someone, if what they're presenting to you are the actual photos of the property or if they're a representative uh, of the area or, or things like that. I know a lot of people that will put up other people's pictures when they're representing their property. But there are people on Upwork, Fiverr, Craigslist. You can find people in those markets a lot of places that will go out and take pictures for 50 or 100 bucks. You can go out and get some actual photos of the property. We've done that before when we've bought properties in Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, places where it's just not realistic for us to get to, but we want to actually have some eyes on the property. We typically don't do it anymore when we're buying a property. We can use the tools online good enough. One of our lessons learned is when we first started out the business, we were very picky about our properties. We were looking cosmetically. Is it an attractive property? Are people going to like it? But it doesn't matter. Looking back, that's the one lesson we take away is we should have bought every property we could have got our hands on because you can sell that property and you can make a hefty profit. So today we look at things like, is it landlocked? That's a big thing. Some people will try to sell you a property and that's why they want to offload it because it's difficult to get to or you can't get to it. There are a few other things that may throw you off if there's a trash dump next to your property or, or something like that. But quite honestly, there's somebody that wants that property too. So. More and more on the buy side, we don't really do too much other than an online look. And we really check the chain of title that we're looking for. Is it a clean property in terms of does it not have any liens or, or things like that? And then on the sell side, we just be open, honest, be a good representative. I don't want somebody coming back and saying that they want us to take back a property because it wasn't what they thought it was. But we don't do it too much anymore. If it's fun, we'll go out and do it. I mean, we love getting out. We have a Jeep. We'll go play around out in the rural areas and check things out. And on these, once you're listing them to sell or, you know, however you're selling these, I assume you're listing most of these, how long are these taking to close typically? So let's say from close to close, buy to sell. What is your average hold time on these? I would say it's less than four weeks. We buy property and we sell them pretty quick. So over time, we have a few different avenues. So we have cultivated a buyer's list. So we have a list of people that have expressed interest over the last seven years. So we have a pretty hefty list that we can go out and pre-shop properties to. And we can sell a lot of properties that way. There are free channels. There's Facebook Marketplace. There's Craigslist. There's eBay, if you want to put it on eBay. There's a few different places where you can advertise, and there's a really active market for those types of properties. And then there's paid sites. You can go on land.com, and they have a whole family of sub website and places that you can have basic memberships. You can have premium memberships. There's Zillow. And then more and more these days, we leverage realtors because they can do a lot of the legwork. They'll go take photos. They'll list it on the MLS. So entertain their own buyer pool. But a lot of different ways you can get this done. But for us, we don't keep property in inventory very, very long. And really, it's a conscious decision. Honestly, we flip properties pretty quickly just on their own. But if we get a property that's aging, there are other ways to get that moving. We like the philosophy that money loves speed. So we just like our inventory turning and reinvesting and doing things, at least on the land side. When we get more into residential and commercial, I really like the buy and hold mentality and just keeping cash flow coming in. But for land, it's a pretty quick turn. There's a wholesale marketplace within the land flipping community. There's We buy land and we sell land on wholesale terms. So it's, it's this middle ground between what we can get it for and what the retail is. So there's still a margin to be made just a bit of a less one. And then we'll go deep discount on some properties if it's just not turning just to get it moving and, and to reinvest. 
My last question on that, because I could talk about this all day because I'm fascinated, is are you buying things that are like developable lots? And let me preface this with saying that the only familiarity I have with land flipping, we'll call it, is people buy rural lots or less desirable lots and then they get it rezoned or they change the development ability of it. And then they can take this from a $100,000 lot to a million dollar lot just from some of those things. Is that what you're doing or is this strictly buy low, sell high on as is, so to speak? We only purely flip right now. So we don't mess with rezoning. There is a play to be made should you want to do it and have the skill set and the time to do it. So yeah, you can buy and try to rezone. We know people who've bought hundreds of acres and platted it and put in dirt roads and a little bit of basic infrastructure out in West Texas. I know some people who are part of a syndication that bought property just outside of Austin that they put entitlements on it. So they did exactly what you're describing. They just bought the rural land and they put the entitlements on it. And I don't know what they 10x the value or whatever they did to do that. All the way up to putting in the infrastructure, some pavement and waste management and electricity. So all that can be done. We just keep it really simple because uh, it just adds layers of complexity that we haven't really felt the need to get into, quite frankly. Okay. Very interesting stuff. I learned more about land sales here than I have in my entire life. So I appreciate that. I do want to touch a little bit on your multifamily. And I know you know that was kind of the focus of your last call. So we won't spend a ton of time on it. But briefly, you said in the intro that your focus for multifamily, the reason why you pivoted into that was because you were making so much money selling land that you needed some tax sheltering there. So that's obviously a great problem to have. What markets are you buying multifamily in? Tell me a little bit about that side of your business. Sure. We're fairly market agnostic. We have been up until now. So we had some early deals in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Those have gone the cycle. So we're out of those. They were great deals for us. We have property in Iowa that we're partners in. We have a few in Texas that we're partners in all over Texas, quite frankly. So a bit agnostic. And that's just been where we've looked. Since we moved to Colorado and especially here in the Woodland Park area the last two years, we started looking at Colorado Springs. The market's super, super hot. So we actually thankfully didn't pull the trigger on any deals here. The market went south right about the time we were looking around and deals weren't penciling out really good. So hopefully they'll come back around here in the next year. Are you actively operating these, managing these? Are you passively investing in these? Like what's your structure on? on we have a mix. Investors? So yeah, we, okay. we've passively invested and we have our own self-directed IRA that we passively invest in. We also passively invest through our business just for the tax benefits, as well as we have been lead sponsors on that side. So we, we kind of go across the board. Okay. Well, then I'll ask you this. I've been asking almost every guest this, but what do you think is going to happen in the, we'll keep it the multifamily market, next six to 12 months? What are you thinking in underwriting and seeing? So it's a mixed bag, honestly, and it's market dependent. But in general, I forget the number, but there's a massive amount of deals I would say 2021, November, December, I believe was the peak of closings for multifamily deals. The typical structure of those two, three year refinance on those value add type deals. So there's a massive amount of deals that their term is up. They need to either refinance or get out. A lot of those deals are in trouble. There's some floating debt on those, floating debt without rate caps. So there will be a lot of distress in the market. Different lenders, it feels like, are taking different approaches. Some are working with operators. A lot aren't. So as far as opportunistically, we are looking for some troubled assets in good markets. That being said, the lending terms are still not great. They're just not. 
The interest rates are high. The LTV is low. So it's hard to make your traditional value add pencil out. Even at that level, you kind of have to look for those distressed assets. At the same time, the investor base is not really energized too much to get into multifamily. So raising money for some deals is difficult. I know a few people who are doing cash purchases on assets. We're taking the approach, we're scaling down a little bit. We have typically looked at 100 unit higher type properties. We may go a bit lower and look at something around the 50 to 100 unit where we can JV with people and potentially get better terms or even self finance some of these or owner financing is a little better in those type of situations where you have maybe some older buyers that do have good terms outside of those distressed ones. But yeah, it's going to be a difficult time, but there are other properties that are doing okay. There are some that got good terms on their loans and are out of that messy middle. A lot of properties are are stuck with, but it's hard to say. I don't want to get caught forecasting what's going to happen. There's so many variables at play between election year, geopolitics, who knows what inflation is going to do. Hopefully it's a once in a lifetime occurrence, but it has been a once in a lifetime occurrence to have a pandemic shutting down supply chains at different times, all of them coming back online at different times. Rents going up, largely because of a lot of these syndications, by the way, but rents being pushed up and then the Fed taking aggressive action. So it's a tricky time. But I did see a great graphic not too long ago that 1975 peak inflation, peak interest rates. If you decided to wait until conditions got more favorable, you'd have been waiting 15 or 20 years. So it's just a matter of making deals work and knowing what you want to look for and being out there. But uh, I I do think there will be some deals. There'll probably be a lot of competition for those deals, though. So we'll have to see. Yeah, that's great perspective. And obviously, none of us have a crystal ball. But I love throwing that question out there just to hear what people are seeing, their perspectives on the forecasting, so to speak. And it'll be interesting to see. I'm not sure if we're going to have the great wave of inventory that a lot of people have considered happening. I think that could be a good thing for the market overall if we do have a wash. But like you said, there's so many people that have been waiting on inventory to tick up that the buyer pool may continue to expand and may not feel any different than it does now or has the last year or two. So great perspective. I appreciate it. You ready to transition to the best ever lightning round? Oh, yeah, man. Let's do it. Lightning round. I forgot about that. Let's go. What is your best ever book recommendation? Best ever book recommendation is still probably Mindset. I think I brought this up on the first occurrence, but there's a book by Carol Dweck called Mindset that really gets into fixed versus growth mindset. Best one I've read recently is one called Strength to Strength by Arthur Brooks, which really talks about how you can leverage your strengths over time. I think a lot of people have different strengths when you're pre 40, let's say, versus when you get over 40 or 50, you can reinvent yourself and leverage other aspects of your talents in other ways. So really great book on how to keep a career alive for a a length of time. Best ever way you like to give back. I love coaching. When I was in corporate world, it's really what I enjoyed doing. Since I've been out of corporate world, I've found ways to continue being a coach. So I do a small amount of personal coaching, life type coaching with just a few clients. But my wife and I started land coaching this year as well. So we have a couple of coaching programs where we'll teach people how to make great money. And we've transformed a few lives in 2023, which was a huge win for us. And we're looking to do more of that in 2024. So that's far and away my favorite way to do it. I'll say I may be your next student. I'm very intrigued by this whole land flipping thing. Yeah, bring it on. You may may hear from me. And give me a mistake in an investment deal and the lesson you learned from it. Well, I think as with many people out there, I would say in multifamily, we were involved in a deal that closed in November 2020. And it closed with a variable rate and without a rate cap. 
So it has been a grind, but there are a lot of lessons out of that. A lot of those are rear view lessons. So some of those are hard, but their lessons are none the same. But certainly the fundamentals have to be there as well as it's good to have as secure financing or as, let's say, fixed type financing as you can get. But I think a lot of people are going through it. And where can people reach out and learn more about you? The best ways for me, I'm active on LinkedIn. You can find me. I think it's Michael B. Deaton is my handle, but you can find me there. Also, if you go to flippingdirt.us, that's with our land program. And there's some contact points there to find out. In fact, I think by the time this airs, we'll have a flippingdirt.us slash freedom, which will put all of our landing page type information little information about the programs, contact information, things like that. Awesome. We'll be sure to link to those in the show notes as well as your previous episode. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, if you got value from hearing Mike's story and learning about land flipping like I know I did, then please leave us a five-star review on the app of your choice. Make sure you're following us on social media and hope you all have a best ever day. Mike, thank you again. Joe, thank you. Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.